thousands of years, every morning and evening, Jewish people have prayed these well-known words as a way of expressing their devotion to God. They're called the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. And as for you, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your strength. We're going to look at the last word, strength. The Hebrew word is ma'od, and it occurs some 300 times in the scriptures, and it doesn't actually mean strength. There is a perfectly good word for strength in Hebrew, and ma'od is not it. In fact, the Shema is one of the only places in the whole Bible where ma'od is translated as strength. So what's up with that? The most common meaning of ma'od is very or much. It's what grammar nerds call an adverb, a word that comes alongside other words to augment their meaning. For example, in Genesis chapter one, God looks at the world that he's made and six times he calls it good, but then the climactic seventh time, he says it is ma'od good, that is very good. Later in Genesis, in the story of Noah, the flood waters keep rising and they become ma'od powerful or extremely powerful over the land. In the story of Cain and Abel, Cain wasn't just angry at his brother, he was ma'od angry. Or when Saul became the king of Israel, he was ma'od happy. So you can see why ma'od occurs hundreds of times in the Bible. It's a really common Hebrew word that intensifies the meaning of other words. Very this, or really that. However, biblical authors could use ma'od in ways that are unique. Like when they want to increase a word's force to total capacity, they'll say ma'od twice. So Jacob became ma'od, ma'od wealthy with flocks and camels and donkeys and servants. Or the Israelite spies went to investigate the promised land and they say, the land we pass through is ma'od, ma'od good. So it's pretty clear, ma'od doesn't mean strength in terms of muscle power, but rather very or much. So let's come back to the Shema, where people are called to love God with all of their heart, that is their will and affections, and with all of their soul, that is their whole life and physical being, and with all of their ma'od, that is with all of their muchness. And while that sounds kind of funny, you also kind of get it. If ma'od can intensify any word's meaning to total capacity, then this final thing that you use to love God isn't a thing at all. It's actually everything. Loving God with your ma'od means devoting every possibility, opportunity, and capacity that you have to honoring God and loving your neighbor as yourself. It's the most wide and expansive word in the Shema. Ma'od can refer to almost anything. Which raises one last and really fascinating point. Because this word was capable of many nuances of meaning, ancient Jewish communities interpreted ma'od in the Shema in different ways. So the ancient Jewish scholars who translated the Hebrew Bible into Greek, when they came to ma'od in the Shema, they translated it with the Greek word dunamis, that is power or strength. This is the interpretation adopted by most modern translations. But if you look at the ancient Aramaic translations of the Hebrew Bible, you'll discover that these scholars interpreted ma'od to mean wealth. Money is a concrete thing that opens up all kinds of opportunities to love God by giving away resources. And when Jesus was asked about the most important command in scripture, he quoted the Shema. And he used two words to unpack the meaning of ma'od. He said, love God with all of your mind and with all of your power. Both are human capacities that can be used to love God in an infinite number of ways. So which of these interpretations of ma'od is right? Does it mean strength or wealth or mind? That's the wrong question. The word ma'od doesn't limit the number of ways you can show love for God, just the opposite. The point is that everything in a person's life, every moment and every opportunity, 
Every ability and capacity offers a chance to love and honor the one who made you. It's a call to love God with all of your muchness. And that's the meaning of strength in the Shema. So turn to someone, look, find someone around you, look them right in the eyeballs and say, you is mo'od good. <laughs> you is mo'od good, Ali. So to love God with all of your muchness, for those of you who love grammar, and you're going to hear that word over and over again. You are going to be like chalkboard on nails. But today is just the day for you to grow. So welcome. Good to have you here. So we're going to talk about that this morning. And for me, when I'm going through the scriptures, sometimes it's helpful for me to look at the other side of something in order to better grasp what it is the scripture is teaching. For example, um, if we're going to talk about loving God with all of our muchness, then the opposite of that would be loving God with all of our lessness. That's even worse than saying muchness. And we don't use the word lessness, it doesn't make any sense. But we do have words in our English language that when you hear them, they instantly resonate to know, okay, if I understand that, then I can get the opposite of it. For example, if someone said, you know, you gave a half-hearted effort, we would be talking essentially about lessness. Yes, you did something, but your something wasn't your everything. So it was adequate at best. We talk about sometimes when we look again in our, our language that I was present, but I just wasn't into it. It's another way that we can talk about that my, I didn't give all of my muchness. I, I maybe gave a little bit of it, but I just, I just wasn't into it. Or we're just going through the motions. And so none of those things actually articulate, love the Lord your God with all, everyone say all, all your heart, all your soul, or all your mind, and all your muchness. All of your muchness. And this morning is straight on message. I want you to know it convicted me this week as I went through it. I hope as much as the Holy Spirit convicts you. There's nothing. I'm not slinging shame. I'm not doing any of those things. It's not about condemnation whatsoever. But I do pray the Holy Spirit brings guilt that leads us to God. I do pray that he brings conviction that helps us to be more like Christ. We in the church today, anything that feels like that, we're like, well, no, that's not God. That's not God. We are rejecting a move of the Holy Spirit when we reject conviction and guilt in our hearts and lives. When we receive legalism and condemnation and try to make ourselves better, that's not what we want. I'm going to probably say it a hundred times this next year, but at the heart of following Jesus, it is absolutely everything that Jesus has done for us, we receive as a gift of grace. How many know that none of us earned salvation? What we saw with eight individuals in this service and four individuals in the first service, so a total of my math is correct, plus 10, 12. 12? 12 people, we saw them taking a muchness step. How many know it's not easy to stand in front of people and share your story or have your story read, but we see muchness. God, I'm going to honor you in this moment. But not one of them did that to earn salvation. Salvation is already given to them. They opened their heart to it. That's all they did. In fact, we can't even come to God unless the Holy Spirit first convicts us. So nothing to boast, but so we receive this done gift in our hearts and lives, meaning that we don't have to do it. Jesus did it absolutely on our behalf, that he died to give us a life that we could never earn. However, we as a church, so the gospel is opposed to earning. You can't earn it. But the gospel is not opposed to effort. 
On the other side of it, the gospel is not opposed to I surrender or I take a step or I give or I serve or I engage or I welcome your guilt and conviction in my heart to help you, to help me look more like you. It's to never flip those two things around, but we live in a time where we're only talking about what Jesus has done. And yes, that's the ground and that's the meaning and that's the heart. But out of love, we also have to talk about then what we do to honor the gift that Jesus has given us. And that's what we're talking about today, honoring God with our muchness, with our muchness. Because I believe, I don't know if it's prophetic or not, only time will tell, but we're living in the time of the low bar. It's what we're living in. Politically, it's the lies. How low can the bar go? But we're living it economically. We're living it in, in lots of different ways. That it's, We're living it relationally. We're living in every which way. And including what you see in the church. Did you know if you take the body of Christ in, in Canada, in particular the U.S., in terms of loving God with our muchness, even all of our finances, it's about 1.8%. How low can we get the bar? Me as a pastor, I'm going to just go right in here. I'm getting a little bit, i got to take deep breaths. First of all, me in my own life saying, God, would you rid it out of me? And then from that place, it's not how much of the world can I get in me and still be saved and acceptable. So the questions shouldn't be who can I sleep with or what can I smoke or what can I drink or who can I shack up with and God still loves me and accepts me. I'm thankful for his grace. I'm thankful for all those things. But the questions that we should be asking ourselves are not on that side of the equation. They should be how can I be more like Jesus? How do I get more of the Holy Spirit in me? How do I actually stop being so bigoted and racist when I look at the world around me? God, how do you change me? on the inside out? How close can I get to you so that my life is changed? God, I thank you from the family that you absolutely brought me in, but Lord, would you set me free so that I can be bought into the family of God with an inheritance that changes everything in my life? Not how low can the bar go? Jesus, I thank you that you changed it from a bar to a gate, and I come through your gates with thanksgiving and praise, but God, would you change my life and I get close to you? Not again. All how can I do all these things and just keep my salvation? The better question should be, Again, how full of spirit I can be to change the world in which I live. Because I actually think the world is just getting sick and tired of Christians who have low bars. And I think they're actually calling us out on it. And good on them for calling us out. Sometimes God uses others to convict the church. Welcome it. Okay, let's keep going. <laughs> Some turn to someone up and say, this is the middle of the summer. We're not ready for this. We're like, we're... Where's the, where's the, where's the, we're not ready for this. Well, ready or not, here we come. Because see, there's a big difference between only having so much to give and not giving so much. And we're going to talk about that. Luke chapter 9 is this amazing, amazing encounter. So Jesus is on the way to Jerusalem where he is going to be uh, betrayed. He is going to be falsely accused. His life is not going to be taken from him. He is willingly, as Hebrews says, he's going to give up his life again so that you and I can receive a gift that we can't earn in and of ourselves. But that's the trajectory of his life. And he is now going through a town called Samaria in Luke chapter 9. And he has these controversial, statements. They are just as challenging then as they are today. And they remind me of the C.S. Lewis comment that says that, you know, God is loving, he is kind, he is all of these things. But one thing he isn't is safe. And what it means by that is not that he is in terms of like unsafe, like somebody who would be unsafe to do us harm. No, it's that he loves us so much that he actually has the courage to go there. 
that the things that we hold on to, he will actually put his finger upon them if he knows they're not going to ultimately bring us life. And so there is this place of being unsafe in the hand of God that it's not always a safe place. When you open your Bible and read your devotions, that's not a safe place. Anybody ever read their Bible and read it and it begins to read you and you go, ow, that's me. And then it says change, like grow, grow up, change, be transformed. It's this place of saying, God, I surrender. So that's what's going to happen in the story. Luke chapter 9. And they went out to another village. And as they were going along the road, so they were on this journey. And they're all kind of walking with Jesus. And he's walking. And some brown noser in the crowd (laughs) says these words, I will follow you wherever you go. It's like when you were in class and the professor or your teacher said, well, if there are no more questions, we're going to end it here. We're going to end it early. And there was always the skull neck who put their hand up and they were like, um, excuse me, I have a question. And everybody in the, in the room hated them with all of their meod. <laughs> and they'd ask their questions and the professor 45 minutes later, come on, remember that? And in the hallway, everyone's like, what? You know, couldn't you let us all be dismissed and then ask the question? No. So one person says, I will follow you wherever you go. Which again, is a really wonderful thing to say to Jesus. And if Jesus was safe, he would have turned and went, oh, that's the type of follower and disciple I'm looking for. If Jesus was only about positive affirmation, then that's what he would have just affirmed. But Jesus turns and has a proverbial, really, moment. Really? And then he kind of begins, doesn't kind of begin, (laughs) he begins to test it. And so this is what he says. And they're going along the road and someone says, I'll follow you wherever you go. Remember, he's on his way to Jerusalem where he's going to be betrayed and crucified. I'll follow you wherever you go. Really? (laughs) See, because it's one thing to follow Jesus when the miracles are happening. It's one thing to follow Jesus when the crowd's chanting, Hosanna, Hosanna. It's another thing to follow when the crowd turns and then you is in the impopular crowd. And so Jesus has this really moment. And Jesus says to him, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Now, I don't know much about relationships, but this I know. When you say to someone, man, I'm all in with you, I am all in with you, and they turn to you and say, foxes have holes, you're in trouble. They're trying to teach something. It's like in marriage when you first fall in love with someone and you see someone. When I remember when I first saw Lori and I fell in love. There was nobody else on the planet. And I said, I will do anything for that love. And now, you know, 20-some years later, it's, I'll do anything for love, but I'm not going to do that. So <laughs> you grow. You grow in wisdom and understanding. But he turns and Jesus essentially says, again, you're seeing all of these things around my life, but... I have left home, which for him was heaven. I am essentially in a place created, creator is with creation, and he's saying, I just wander from town to town. In some towns, there's moves. In others, it's just controversy. In other words, what Jesus is saying to him, the first thing he says If you're going to follow me wherever I go, the very first thing you're going to have to give up is comfort. You can't be so comfortable in this world that you do everything that you just want to do, when you want to do it, with whoever you want to do it. There's going to be a challenge to your heart around your comfort. I promise you, there's nothing wrong with being comfortable in life. 
I don't always try to seek not be or living in discomfort. For example, when I sit on a chair, I don't try to sit on it in a manner that is not comfortable. I try to go all comfortable. When I lie down, I want to be all comfortable. Comfortable in your life is not a problem until it is. And when is it a problem? Comfort is a problem when it begins to collide with your calling. Because when it comes to your calling, here's what's true of all of us, no matter what your calling is. Your calling will not be achieved by stepping over a low bar. And your low bar is often our comfort. How low can it go so that I have no guilt, no conviction, nothing's making me feel bad at all. I'm just living my best life, doing whatever I want to do. The scripture does not call that freedom, it calls it bondage. And so then Jesus begins to raise up the bar. And we realize, whew, not bad there. And then he comes and says, okay, now I'm going to pull it up a notch. And it's not to trip you up. It's because your calling always involves other people. It's not to trip you up. It's so that you don't trip them up. And all of us fall short in this way, and I am thankful for his grace. But this is what Jesus is starting to do generationally in the world in which we live today. He's starting to raise the bar because we can't get it much lower. And that's what he was doing here in Luke chapter 9, that he begins to say, you want to follow me? That's a great thing. But just want you to know it's going to cost you your comfort. You know what I hate? I hate fine print. I hate it with a passion. Bless you. I hate fine print with a passion. I hate signing a cell phone contract. <laughs> Only to learn that nothing up front just means you're going to pay more later. Then when you want to try to, how many of you know the fine print matters when you go to get out of the contract? Devil loves fine print. Like one point font fine print. So that's legally there. But that's not Jesus because Jesus loves you. I am so grateful in this story that someone didn't cry out and say, man, I'll follow you wherever you go. And he went, yeah, just follow, come on. Just follow Jesus and everything in your life will get better. That is a lie. Follow Jesus and all hell turns against you. Sometimes, sometimes what? Let me go there. Then he says here, he keeps going. To another he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, first let me go bury my father. Okay, this is so not politically correct. And Jesus said to him, let the dead bury the dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Now here you remember, Jesus did not come to throw away the law. He came to fulfill the law. Within the law is honor your father and your mother. Jesus in this sentence is, the Bible does not contradict itself. It completes itself. Sometimes you just have to go a little bit deeper than a daily bread in order to understand what's happening in the moment. So here in this moment, Jesus is not saying to him, go back and dishonor your father. What he is speaking about in terms of Jewish cultures and times is it could take up to a year to bury his father. So what Jesus is really driving at is not just comfort, but there are going to be, there is no convenient season to go all in in following Jesus. 
There's no convenient season. Well, Lord, I can't do it. In the, I, can't, I can't do it. I'm just a kid. I don't know. I can't do it. I'm just a teenager. I don't know. I can't do it again because I just fell in love. I don't know if anybody else. I just, I just love. I just love. I just love. Wow, I love. I love. I love. I love. I love. Not, not you. I love you too, but not that way. I like you. The, so there's this season. And then it's like, well, Lord, I, I, can't, I can't do it now. I'm single. I'm just sowing my wild oats. I need it's me time, me time, me time. And then again, it could be that you're single and that's great. Or it could be that you get married and it's like, well, I, I can't, can't get married now. I just, I just got married. I can't get married. I go, Lord, I can't go all in right now. I can't go all in right now. I for certainly can't go all in right now because I'm saving up for mortgage. I'm saving up for this. I can't tithe. I can't tithe. I can't even afford 2%. I can't, I can't, I can't, I can't, I can't. I can't, I can't, I can't do that. I can't do that. I can't do that. No way, no way. God, you understand. God, you understand. Lower the bar, lower the bar. God, you understand. <laughs> and then all of a sudden you have kids. And here's what I want you to know. God doesn't understand, okay? But here's the thing is that he understands, but he doesn't understand. He doesn't, no, no, no. Um, and then you have kids. You're like, well, God, I, I can't, I can't, I can't go all in right now because I got young kids and they're taking everything. I don't sleep anymore, <laughs> ever. I've told the story a hundred times. I'm going to tell it till I die. I, 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 with the firstborn, my, my firstborn son, Treff, when he was born, uh, we were in labor for a long time. See how I included myself in that? I'm a 2019 man. I felt it in my heart. I felt it in my soul. Like I... Yeah, no. Lori was in labor for a long, long time. I just stood there, like, eating donuts and snacks. Um, yeah, I went, like, my job, I think, was to hold her leg. And I think even in that, I almost passed out. Remember that? You told <laughs> Dr. Diane told me, go put a splash of water. It was like 30-some hours, and at the very end, I almost missed it. Typical man moment, but I didn't. However, the moment my son Treff was born, I came out to my mom and my, my, my mother-in-law, and I think it was my grand nanny was there at the time. I turned, and I said, thank God he was born. Now I can get some sleep. And they were like, you are the <laughs> stupidest man we've ever met in our lives. <laughs> and they were right. They were right. It's been a lot of years, and there's still no sleep. But, you know, I can't, I, can't, I, can't, I can't do it in that season. I can't, I can't do it in that season. And then your kids grow up and they become teenagers. Oh. <laughs> not you. You're awesome, Allie. And, and not, 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 not my kids, but, and not your kids. From, but I've, I've heard kids at other churches, I've heard <laughs> from their parents that they, they take a lot They don't know how. They, they don't know how. They don't know how to clean a bathroom <laughs> or wash a dish. Now I didn't at their age either. Okay, and I my parents had grace and truth for me too. So there's grace and truth. But 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 it's like Lord, I, I can't. I can't have no time. I mean, my kids are in school. They're in sports. They're in this. They're in that. They're they're here, there, and everywhere. They've got to be a part of all of these things. Seek first the kingdom of God and these things, and then all these things will be added unto you. God, you'll understand if I just lower the bar and seek all these things. No, then you won't have the kingdom of God. He doesn't understand. So I can't do it in that season, and then all of a sudden it's like, you know, then your kids aren't teenagers, and then they go to college, and you're like, well, I can't can't now, because now that's really expensive. We got a second mortgage on the home. And then, of course, you move to season after season after season. Jesus is saying in this instance here, he's not trying to be terse. He's simply saying there's never a convenient time. If you wait for the convenient time, you're going to be waiting your entire life. Yes, there are times and there are seasons, but there's never the convenient time. Duality in your pursuit will affect your, much, your muchness. And then finally in Luke chapter 9, it continues and it says, Yet another one said, I will follow you, Lord, but. <laughs> oh, man. I will follow you, but. Let me first say farewell to those at my home which seems like just basic manners. 
Like, certainly you can't object. Can I just go say bye? And Jesus said to him, no. <laughs> no. He didn't just say no. He said no one. No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. What is that all about? What's he talking about there? Well, that comes from a story in 1 Kings chapter 19 when Jesus says, no one puts his hand on the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Jesus is not saying, you can't just go back and have manners. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is for some of you, the most dangerous thing is you can go back because if you go back, you're never going to go forward. If you keep going back to that relationship, if you keep going back to that struggle, if you keep going back to that thing, just to say goodbye, sometimes the way you say goodbye is you turn and you move forward. And that's what Jesus is driving at here. He's telling a story of a man by the name of Elijah and Elisha. Now let's rewind quickly to the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, God would use an individual as his mouthpiece. This was not, as God would do that, it was not a full condoning of everything that was in that individual's life. And written into the law, you know, it wasn't like in the Old Testament, someone who claims to be prophetic could just put something out there and if they were wrong, just kind of have a retraction. Or in the world we live today, if people are wrong, there is no integrity, there is no retraction. No, no, in the Old Testament, if you claim to speak for God, if you said, thus saith the Lord, and what you said did not happen, you were stoned to death. It was a big deal. So you have to understand the Old Testament, again, it wasn't, a, when God would use an individual, it wasn't a full condoning. But then Jesus shows up and he fulfills beautifully the role of prophet, priest, and king. And so what we see in the Old Testament was a shadow to what we're going to see in New Testament. In the New Testament, it's the body of Christ. Again, the bar doesn't lower, it's different. So trust is really important. How we work together is really important in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, it's a little bit different. So there's a prophet by the name of Elijah. All of that to get here. There was a prophet by the name of Elijah, and he was about to have a supernatural experience where literally he was going to be taken to heaven. And so that meant there was no representative on the earth to be a mouthpiece for God, and so there was another person named Elisha. And here's the story. So he departed from there, and he found Elisha, the son of Shaphat hopefully, probably just butchered that, who was plowing with 12 yoke, there's no probably, I just butchered that, who was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen in front of him, and he was with the 12th. And Elijah passed by him and cast his cloak on him. That's his mantle upon him. And it says, and he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, let me kiss my father and my mother and then I will follow you. And he said to him, go back again for what I have done, for what I've done to you. And he returned. This is Elisha now. He's getting ready to pursue or to follow Elijah. And he returned, he returned from following him and he took the yoke of oxen and he sacrificed them and he boiled their flesh. Turn the person beside you and say, yum. <laughs> he boiled their flesh with the yokes of the oxen and he gave it to the people and they ate. Then he arose and went after Elijah and assisted him. And so what Jesus says in this moment, he pulls from that story and essentially he says is stop having an exit strategy when it comes to following me. For Elijah, it was the oxen. 
Why did Elisha, I mean, he, he, he could have just left them all there and moved ahead. But what he did is, I have decided to follow, no turning back. So he kisses his mother, he kisses his father, another way of saying, I'm no longer here. He removes this way of life, and then he goes all in. Everyone say all in. He goes all in and pursued, all in and following Elijah. It's an amazing story. And so Jesus pulls that story, remember, because he's not here to do away with it. He's here to fulfill it and show you the heart. And what he's saying here is this individual says, Lord, I will follow you, but. And Jesus says, no, 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 Lord, I will follow you and. Come on. In other words, sometimes you've got to be willing to cut something off to, follow, to fully pursue Jesus. Because half-hearted following affects our muchness. Okay? Now, let's finish here. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. Okay? With all your heart. Love the Lord your God with all your soul. Okay? All your soul. And love the Lord your God with all your strength. Meaning... Everything you got. Love the Lord your God. Because you and I have an enemy who constantly seeks to devour, here's what I want you to know. In some seasons, your muchness will be this capacity. In other seasons, your muchness will be different. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. Same heart. Same soul, okay? Love the Lord your God with all your heart. And with all your soul. And love the Lord your God with all your what? With all your strength. There are going to be some Sundays to love God with all of your strength is going to look like this. And it's going to take all your strength just to walk through these doors. And then you're going to have other seasons in your life where you're going to have different capacity. The question isn't which one is better. The question is both are worthy of worship. Whatever you got, you give. Someone else around you may have more muchness than you do in a season. It's not a contest. You love God, same heart, different capacity. Anybody here in their life, by a show of hands, ever go through a tough time? Can I see your hands, please? In your tough time, you had a different capacity. And you have a spiritual enemy, he will always, always remind you of the gap in your capacity. When he does that, remind him, it's not the gap in the capacity that matters. It is Christ in the gap that matters more than the gap in my capacity. That in my life, there are times and there are seasons where my capacity is different. But the command of Jesus never changes. It's all of your muchness, no matter what that is. When I personally read the scripture, some of you may say, well, where's that in the scripture? I read in the scripture of people putting in large sums of money, and Jesus doesn't even seem to matter, doesn't even, into the, doesn't even seem to move. And then a widow with a mite, which isn't much muchness, 
in human standards comes and puts it in and Jesus stops and says, man, if we look in the world, this person gave a billion dollars and this person gave a million dollars and this person gave a thousand dollars and this person gave a tenth of a penny and Jesus stopped and said, that's a lot. Because one was giving out of a different place, but that was all in. One was half-hearted and this was much muchness. One time a little boy took his lunch, which wasn't much, and he gave it to Jesus. He gave it, he didn't portion it out. I've got some bread and some fish. I'm going to keep back a fish and a piece of bread. He didn't work it. The only time you see in the scriptures where people do that, their names were Ananias and Sapphira, and it didn't go well. Because there's something about muchness. It's not the amount, it's the heart. It's loving God with this space. It's going all in. God, I only have in this season of my life five minutes in this moment. Then give him your muchness. Here's the thing. Some of you, so because here's, here's the real rub of this message this morning. Because our muchness is finite, meaning not, none of us have unlimited strength. When we believe we have unlimited strength, it leads to burnout. It's limited. We can't give it everywhere. But what Jesus said is that if we seek him first, and if we put the kingdom first, he is a supernatural God. He is a multiplying God. So here's the lie. God, if I give that muchness to you, I won't have any muchness. That is not knowing the heart of the Father because what the Father is, he delights to give good gifts to his kids. What you give to God never, ever, 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 ever is gone. It is multiplied back to you because he isn't just good, he's amazing. 